you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. A very good Tuesday morning to you. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope you had a terrific President's Day weekend. If you had the day off and were able to enjoy our Air Talk Academy Awards special, six interviews with Oscar nominees from some of the biggest films, great performances, and terrific screenplays. Hope you enjoyed that very much. And of course, you can find all of those interviews on our website at laist.com. Well, we've had an opportunity to talk about some of the biggest uh, items that are on the Los Angeles County ballot with our reporter, Frank Stoltz. Now it's a chance for us during this very heavy election season to focus on Orange County and what's going on there. If you're an Orange County resident, you've probably seen the signs up for two of the Board of Supervisors races. District 1, which is an open seat, The district includes in it Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, Westminster, most of Garden Grove. There, the uh, incumbent Republican Andrew Doe is not able to run for a third term. And there are four candidates seeking what had been Doe's seat, two of them quite familiar names. Janet Wynn, who's a state senator and former Orange County supervisor, she's a Republican, and Van Tran, who's a member of the Orange County Water District Board of Directors, the chief of staff to the incumbent, uh, termed out Andrew Doe, and a former state assembly member from Orange County. There are two other candidates, Westminster Council Member Kimberly Ho and Cypress Council Member Francis Marquez. So that's the field in District 1. In District 3, uh, Don Wagner, the Republican, is the incumbent. He's running for re-election and facing the challenge from the mayor of Irvine, who's a Democrat, Farah Khan. So those are the two uh, supervisorial seats that are in play in Orange County. But much of the attention on the Orange County election has gone to ballot measures in Huntington Beach, where a conservative council majority is holding power. Joining us is our Jill Replogal, LA's senior reporter covering Orange Orange County, and uh, she's the one who's assembled much of the Orange County voter game plan at LAS.com. Jill, good morning. Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about Huntington Beach, because there's tremendous action there on measures one, two, and three. Let's take them one by one. Measure one, what is it? So the big part of that would allow the city to require voter identification. Um, It doesn't say what kind of ID. It doesn't say whether that would be in person or also include mail-in ballots. But according to the mayor, the spirit of it is that it would just be to require it in person. And then it would also um, allow the city to monitor ballot drop boxes and add an additional 20 polling places. So would this essentially take control of Huntington Beach elections from the county registrar and Huntington Beach run those elections itself? 
Well, that is unclear, but um, from what I have read and from what the state has said about this uh, potential voter ID requirement, which um, it's very concerned about, and you know, talking with election experts, it is likely the city would have to take over its own elections in order to not run afoul of state law. Um, it might run afoul of state law anyway, but um, so this, if the city did have to take over its own elections, that could be very costly for it to do. Well, then let's talk about state law because state law bars the use of voter ID in in um, uh, same place voting, correct? In-person voting? Well, so th- what the state does is it really puts um, the majority of its focus on identifying voters in the registration process. So, you know, you go to register um, often w- when you get your driver's license at the DMV um, or, you know, when you move and you you put in your voter registration. And that's when you have to, um, you know, sign an affidavit saying you are who you say you are. You provide um, the last four digits of your social security uh, number or your driver's license or your state ID number. And so that's really where the focus of identifying voters. And then when you go to the polls, um, you generally do not have to show any of that unless you didn't show um, one of those three forms of identification when you first registered, then you might be asked um, to show some other type of identification. And, and the state has a long list of things that you you could show, um, including, for example, a utility bill that has your name and address on it to make sure you are who you say you are. Um, so, so that's kind of how the state handles voter ID. And yeah, so if if the city went through with this, it, um, the Secretary of State and the Attorney General have said it would run afoul of state law. Okay, we're talking about Measure A in the city of Huntington Beach, which would require identification for voting. Does it say what kind of voter ID would be required? It doesn't. It is um, it is quite vague on that. It just says voter ID. And, you know, some of the experts that I talked to said that, you know, that's a that's sort of a, 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 a big question there and could really determine whether or not it runs into problems uh, with with state law, uh, because it's just there would have to be additional measures um, from the city to figure out, you know, whether and how to implement this and what kind of ID they would accept. And if uh, the county said, okay, you're going to have to Huntington Beach take over these elections of yours, and the cost runs into the high six figures or or millions of dollars, do you know, Jill, would would they have to go back to voters if they decided, wait a minute, this is just going to be too expensive or what, you know, what would happen then? That's a good question. And, you know, they they really have less left this very vague. It doesn't even say that the city will necessarily do this. It just would change the charter to allow the city to do it. Um, and, you know, from the discussions that I've listened to that have been public, at least at the city council, they you haven't talked a whole lot about the next steps and what, um, it, yeah, ha- I mean, how they would go about implementing this. They are hoping that the county would still be able to implement elections for them, but that sort of that seems not not totally likely at this point. We're talking with LA's Jill Replogle, and you can see all the work that she's done on the Orange County voter game plan by going to LAS.com/vote. That's LAS.com/vote. Measure B would add a section to the city charter about the display of flags on city property. Jill, what does it say specifically? Right. So it basically uh, gives a list of flags that the city could fly from city flagpoles. It's mostly government flags, the state of California, the um, you know the U.S. government, but that also the PIA, um, uh, PIA um, 
sorry, I'm, you're <laughs> you're not helping with this, Larry. But uh, missing um, P O W M I. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that. <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, so that just a kind of a very strict list of those flags. It would also allow the city to fly the Olympic flag um, during the Olympics. But you know, essentially, this comes out of uh, the city changing, a, you know, a local ordinance. Um, that essentially says the same thing last year, and and they reversed a previous city ordinance which flew the pride flag um, during Pride Month, and and so essentially, you know, the the opponents will say that this is a a veiled way of banning the city from pride, flying the pride flag on city property. That's measure B. And then measure C for Huntington Beach. Uh, this has to do with uh, city council uh, elections. Right. Um, I mean, there's a couple of things in there, but sort of the big one is that it would limit the time that appointees to city council could remain on council without having an election um, if there's a vacancy and, and there needs to be an appointee to city council. Um, this you know, was actually on the ballot the last time around in 2022 and didn't pass. Uh, but in, in some ways, it comes out of um, Tito Ortiz was uh, elected to city council in 2020. He resigned about, I believe it was like about six months later. Um, and then Rhonda Bolton, his replacement has been um, in council for, you know, uh, I think two and two more than two years now. And so they're trying to kind of limit the amount of time that um, somebody who's appointed could stay in office without having to be elected. All right. We're talking about uh, Huntington Beach, the three measures, A, B, and C. Also, we've got um, in the Orange Unified School District a recall effort um, to effort to recall two conservative trustees on the OC Unified Board, Rick Ledesma and Madison Minor. Uh, and what's the background to this recall effort, Jill? So this is really kind of testing the popularity of the so-called parental rights movement. Um, this is a really a nationwide movement that started with a backlash to school masking during the pandemic and distance learning and vaccine requirements. It has sort of moved on to uh, fights over flying the pride flag on, on school campuses and teaching about race, gender, and sexuality in schools. And so um, voters in, in Orange Unified this last time around in 2022 uh, voted in a couple of um, conservative board members, which gave really a, a majority to kind of this parental rights movement um, in the Orange County, in the Orange Unified School District. And um, there have been a couple of um, controversial things that have happened since then, including restricting student access to materials that some parents found appropriate. They also passed a policy banning flying the pride flag. They passed a requirement that students notify parents if their child asks to use a different name or gender than the one assigned to them at birth. Um, and so there's been a backlash to that among some parents, and they were able to collect enough signatures to try to recall two of the conservative school board members. This is for the Orange Unified School District recall effort uh, against two of the trustees, Rick Ledesma and Madison Minor. And then the Orange County Board of Education, three seats up for grabs in the regularly scheduled election. Area 1 includes Fountain Valley, Santa Ana, and portions of Garden Grove and Tustin. Area 3, which includes Brea, Yorba Linda, Irvine, Orange, Villa Park, and parts of Anaheim, Lake Forest, and Tustin. And Area 4, which includes Fullerton, Buena Park, La Habra, Placentia, and parts of Anaheim. What are some of the issues that are at play here for the Orange County Board of Education, Jill? 
This is all also largely about this parental rights movement. Um, the Orange County Board of Education is quite conservative. They're also very pro-charter school. And one of the kind of main things that uh, the Board of Education does at the county level is they can override uh, charter denials um, in individual school districts. And so they have approved um, quite a few charter schools. Some of those have been controversial. And um, so really the three challengers to these seats are all supported by the teachers union um, and by some parents groups. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the teachers would, would like to see uh, a, a different makeup of that board of education. So this this issue of, of what's called the parental rights movement is really seems ground center in Orange County right now. So much of what's happening with these elections really is related to that. And even what we're seeing in Huntington Beach around, you know, the the kinds of, of social issues that maybe we saw, you know, uh, several decades ago really reasserting themselves into elections. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, Orange County has has become a purple county and um, there are some real serious political fights going on uh, between kind of both sides here. It's not um, it, you know, rather than sort of come towards the middle and in some of these local elections, there really seems to be a battle between, you know, sort of increasingly radical sides of, of debates on these some of these big social issues. Yeah, and, and this at a time when the Orange County Board of Supervisors has three registered Democrats of the five. That was a big deal, of course, when that shift occurred in what had been historically a more conservative county. And as you said, the demographics have shifted dramatically, as has voter representation. But uh, some of these uh, social issues you know, continue to be very hot button in Orange County. Jill, anything else to add before we let you go this morning? Um, I hope people will get out and vote. <laughs> of course, uh, you know, the the county kind of interestingly sort of as a, a backdrop to the Huntington Beach elections um, and those ballot measures, you know, the county has um, is has been sort of at the forefront of trying to make it easier for people to vote. And so, um, you know, it, Orange County was one of the first to implement these vote centers, which are open two weeks before elections. And so there's just like a, a, they have made, tried to make it as easy as possible for people to, to get out and vote here. And I think the vote centers in Orange County open in just a, a few days here, don't they? Yeah, that's right. They do. Yeah. All right. Jill, thank you so much. We'll look forward to your continuing coverage and you can see all the work that's been done on the LAist voter game plan, including these Orange County specific races by going to LAist.com slash vote. That's LAist.com slash vote. It'll help you through the important decisions you'll be making during this current election. You're listening to Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Coming up for this week's Southern California History segment, street art in Southern California, from political posters to graffiti to murals. We'll talk about a wide range of art that's on the street when we come back in just a minute. Support. 
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. One of my favorite things to do is to talk Southern California history because it's so rich and uh, so, so many different fascinating aspects to it. Art, of course, is a huge part of it, whether it's institutionally displayed at places like the L.A. County Museum of Art or the Getty or the like, or whether the art is brought to the people on the streets, because, of course, Southern California has been a real center for that in many different ways. Whether you're talking about murals, uh, whether you're talking about graffiti as art, whether you're talking about uh, political posters, which have quite a long history here. Remember Robbie Connell and his posters in the late 20th century taking on Jesse Helms and other social conservatives? L.A. has really been the place for so much of us. And to give us an overview on the importance of greater Los Angeles as a place for street artists, Susan Phillips, Pitzer College professor of environmental analysis and author of The City Beneath, A Century of Los Angeles Graffiti. Professor Phillips, great to have you back with us today on Air Talk. Thank you, Larry. So let's talk about L.A. as a place for street art. I mean, one of the things, of course, is we have more streets, perhaps, than any other city because of the sprawl of Los Angeles. The other is uh, all the cultures that have come here over more than a century to make the region its home. And thirdly, the great weather that we have, which means that art is going to be more likely to be seen on the street. What are some of the other factors that you think are important when we think about L.A.'s place in the world of street art? I think it's, uh, you know, all the things you said, the history of transportation certainly is. And I think it just makes, you know, this um, this way that people have of intersecting with the city into something that's really intertwined with our infrastructure. And, you know, what are the vantage points? What are the views from Los Angeles? A lot of the time, you know, they're from the freeway. It's not necessarily a walking city, at least it hasn't been in the past. So the weather argument, I don't know if that holds, but I do think, you know, if you put up a political poster, it's probably likely to stay up here longer than other places. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's the history of infrastructure intertwined with the history of of people, oftentimes who are marginalized, 
who are utilizing spaces in a really different way than is expected. And um, and this is all part of it. Well, let's, let's go back to early 20th century, 1930s, the Depression, a time of tremendous conflict and despair in much of the world. And we have L.A.'s first large-scale social realist mural. Share with us about how that was received. Um, well, if I were to start with you know, first of all, it was controversial, ultimately covered up. But if I were to start with with the history of this stuff, it would go back further than that. Um, if, if you think about it, the earliest graffiti that we still have in the city actually is from 1873. And it's associated with a, a Civil War building that still stands in, in, in Wilmington. Um, you, you, you move forward from there and what we think about as hobo times and and so forth, you know, massive socio-political and economic upheaval as the country transferred from, you know, an agrarian society to more of an industrialized society in the post-Civil War era, you just get massive, uh, massive numbers of people who are displaced and travel all over the country and then eventually create these incredible Uh, written traditions with their own history and and so forth and that's the kind of graffiti that that i'm really really interested in that's the kind of like cityscape and so forth but any i think to your question any large-scale artistic endeavor may be met with controversy (laughs) and dislike so um it's 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 always that game about who controls public space and who controls private space and how we how we intertwine identities and make them part of the history of the city. And I think your 1930s example is part of that. Yeah, we're talking about the example at the Pueblo in downtown Los Angeles. Mexican-American painter David Alfaro Siqueiros painted this uh, social realist mural, the original Pueblo, uh, and it really um, you know, laid out the foundational spirit of the Chicano movement arriving 30 years later. And then, of course, uh, Chicano mural movement begins in the 1960s alongside uh, the Chicano-led civil rights movement and and a great number of murals that really stem from there. Also with us is Stefano Block, who's associate professor at uh, University of Arizona School of Geography, Development and Environment, directs graduate studies there as well. And Professor Block is author of Going All City, Struggle and Survival in L.A.'s Graffiti Subculture. Professor Block, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Larry. So share with us your your thoughts about, you know, some of these uh, early expressions and how this street art helped to influence uh, the civil rights, the brown civil rights movement in Los Angeles. Yeah, you know, when people take to the walls to tell a political message, what it's saying is, you know, we want you to pay attention to something that's not being presented perhaps in the books or in other forms of media. So the wall is almost both a first and last resort for telling an alternative story and alternative history. And it's meant to get people maybe a bit angry, maybe a bit annoyed. It's meant to bring information to people who have a different form of literacy. So wall art or, or murals or graffiti or whatever you want to call it, as uh, Professor Phillips says, you know, gets people riled and it does that on purpose. So the history of wall markings of all kinds in LA, except for the 
highly personal and kind of, you know, hidden covert markings are always meant to be in conversation with people who the artist feels is not having the right conversation about identity, about politics, and about large-scale movements that LA has always been really the center of. Also with us, longtime graffiti writer in Los Angeles going back to the 1980s. His work has been featured in exhibitions internationally as well as, of course, here in Southern California. Man One, man, thank you for being with us. Of course. Thanks, Larry. Who were some of the artists that were influential on you as a young man coming up as an artist? Yeah, well, when I first started, uh, it was in 87. So I consider myself like the second generation of uh, this hip-hop graffiti art that came from the the East Coast. Um, so at that time, um, there was a lot of artists that I was looking up to, you know, like uh, artists like Slick and Hex, uh, Prime, Duke, you know, these these East LA writers, especially from like STN crew and K2S crew. Those were the guys that were on the streets that I was noticing. Um, but once I got into it, um, one of the, one of the people that really I learned about. I saw his work on the on the freeway one time. Uh, this was Chaz Bajorquez seeing his Senor Suerte over the um, the five freeway near uh, uh, was it the 110. And um, later on, got to meet him, got to know him. This is now we're talking the early 90s, and uh, he became a mentor to me because you know like uh, he was the only guy that was out there doing it. He's been doing it longer than any of us, so we kind of call him the Godfather of graffiti in L.A. I think he's been doing it since like '69 or something. Wow. Yeah. And what is in typically with graffiti art? Who is the audience for the artwork? Well, really, it's it's for each other. You know, that's how we started. Um, when I first started, I started talking about transit. You know, I started by my first tag was on the RTD bus. You know, that's how I started because the bus is what moves us around as kids. You know, I was 16, 17 years old and taking the bus all over the all over the place. Um, but it's really the styles that we develop and the way we paint is for each other. You know, like. Most most people can't understand or read the graffiti art that we're doing or, or the tags or whatever, um, but any other graffiti writer in Alley can read it and and understands it, you know. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Chaka became so popular because he's one of the first graffiti artists to, like, just do, like, a simple font. Yeah, you, know? you could read. You could read it. You know, yeah. my, my grandma could read it. So <laughs> he, he became more famous than the rest of us at that moment, yeah. Did, did that influence others then to be more, more legible to a general audience? Well, yeah, of course. So what happens is, you know, graffiti is always evolving. And so, um, you know, everything, everything that keeps moving forward in terms of the movement um, there's everything from supplies to styles and everything like that keeps evolving and making the, the art form bigger and bigger and to a bigger audience, you know? And so, like, obviously graffiti artists have learned how to, you know, put their name out there and, and be widely seen, you know? Yeah, what are your thoughts about um, the large-scale graffiti that was done on the abandoned high-rise apartment building near L.A. Live that's gotten coverage around the world right. for what the taggers did, and I think a couple of them were, were arrested and released. Yeah, What do you think about that project? I think it's great. I think it's awesome. And, um, you know, going to uh, Professor Block's point of view, um, you know, not everyone likes graffiti. Sometimes it, it annoys people, like you said, and it's true, you know. But what what was the reason for the graffiti going up, right? Um, I always tell people that that graffiti art, you know, uh, points out things that we're trying to to avoid, you know. And um, this was a huge piece of, you know, just a massive, you know, piece of corruption in LA that's been sitting there, and no one's you know, taking ownership or talking about it or whatever. So graffiti artists took it upon themselves to say, hey, here's something that 
that's just sitting here and we're going to do something with it, you know? And so um, it's been an incredible, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a moment in time that's going to be like a flashpoint going forward to, you know, where artists meet, meet uh, politicians and, and the community and, it's just a really interesting, interesting moment in time, I think. The thing I don't quite understand is that because, as you say, the graffiti is done for other artists, not yeah. really for the general public, how do you make a social commentary with it? Well, um, this was, for example, we're using this, this is an example. Um, the social commentary is more about the whole project that that happened you know it's not like necessarily like one artist saying one thing on this it was like the the fact that it all happened at one time on this one building that's the statement the statement is like this 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 you know i don't know how many hundreds of artists or whatever amount of artists were involved but it's really about a statement that were that these artists were making um and that's the art you know um so sometimes the art is individual you know like myself i'm obviously i'm a muralist and i paint and i want to do things and send a message that i want to evoke or whatever but other times it's in it's in the movement and it's in the 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 total the, the totality of of the piece given the number of people that were involved in that project I mean, is that unusual to get that many artists, you know, to come together and to do this, be, you know, because so many of them do work on their own? It's it's not uncommon. And um, and actually, the last time I was here on your show, many years ago, we were talking about the meeting of styles that I did in the Alley River. Um, and there, that was another moment where we had hundreds of artists get together. All and organized. Yeah. And we all organized. Um so yeah, graffiti artists, uh, it's a weird thing because as graffiti artists, we work together as in part of a crew, but we're also individuals. So it's, it's a two-prong you know, attack on society, I guess. And how much, uh, I mean, artists can be quite competitive. We sure. don't necessarily like to think of that as artists, but, but they can be. Yeah. Is that a, a part of this world? Absolutely. Um, you know, the whole thing about getting higher, getting getting more up than the next person, um, the competitiveness of graffiti art is definitely something that, that people uh, strive for and, and work for. Um, you know, we have the thing called battles where, you know, artists battle each other on the streets. Um, so competition is like a is absolutely part of the game. You know, we have some of your art, by the way, up in our Crawford family forum after oh, that event right. that you did there. So yeah. we're talking with man, one longtime graffiti writer in Los Angeles, going back decades. His work's been featured not just in our Crawford uh, family forum, but internationally and throughout Southern California. Locally, his work has been shown at MOCA, at the Getty, the Pasadena Museum of California Art, LACMA, the Orange County Center for Contemporary Art in Santa Ana, and the Pacific Asia Museum in Pasadena. Also with us is Stefano Block, who's a professor at the University of Arizona, and he too is an artist. He considers himself semi-retired. His work is under the name Cisco or Cisco. Most of his major work came in the 90s. And Professor Susan Phillips of Pitzer College with us, author of The City Beneath, The Century of Los Angeles Graffiti. I'd like to hear from you your questions for our guests about street art generally. It doesn't have to be just graffiti art, but murals about a wide range of different art that we see on the streets of greater Los Angeles. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com, 
please include your location and first name. Uh, that's atcomments at las.com. Professor Phillips, I want to ask you about criticism of graffiti because there are those who say, you know, this is this is art that's being done on either pi- public or private uh, uh, property for uh, what's essentially an internal audience, not for a general public audience, and that it's not really appropriate to use those public or private spaces to do this. What's your response to that criticism? That's, um, you know, that's always the the core of the matter that people point to. What I like to think about is is how graffiti is kind of an invitation to question what's appropriate and, and, and who's in control because a lot of the public space that we think of as so-called public space, LA Live is one of those places, um, is actually private space that's highly exclusionary. And um, with a, with a building like the Oceanwide Plaza, you know, it was a refused uh, space, right? It's an abandoned building. It, it's an it's just a, a flagrant example of the abandonment of of like mobile capital. You know, it comes in. And, and lack of accountability, can't get a hold of the people. I mean, it's a it's a it's an interesting study in in contrast. And it it's a you know like somebody like Kevin De Leon stepping up and saying, I, I disagree with this. We're going to clean this up and attempting maybe to clean up his reputation at the same time. I think you think you can think about all of the people who are writing and the places themselves as a kind of you know, a, an invitation to think about broader issues as players, like they're players in a larger scenario. And to me, what's more interesting than talking about vandalism and private property is to really question, you know, why do we even, what categories are we trying to question? You know, how how are people creating belonging in a city that they can't afford, you, you know? Um, so there's, I think, a lot of bigger questions about the direction that Los Angeles is headed. Um, you know, when I go to LA Live or that area where those buildings are, first of all, they're massive. Um, you can't even envision what that project has been as a collective work in a sense without standing there. But you can't also envision what the contrast is because it's basically like a kind of almost like a Disneyland, you know, meets the urban mall type of space trying to be Times Square. Um, and there's just a lot of, I think, critique that we can look at within within those spaces. So I, I mean, people can debate all they want about vandalism and propriety. I'm really interested in ownership of the city. Like, who owns it? Who belongs here? We'll take a Is break. It- we'll continue our conversation. We're talking with Pitzer College professor Susan Phillips, with professor at the University of Arizona, artist himself, Stefano Block, and artist Man One, longtime graffiti writer in Los Angeles. I'd like to hear from you your favorite examples of street art in greater Los Angeles. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866 893 We'll continue you in just 90 seconds. It's our weekly Southern California History of Seg- a Segment of Air Talk. Street art is our focus today with guests, artist Man One, 
artist Stefano Block, who's also professor at the University of Arizona, and Professor Susan Phillips of Pitzer College. We're at 866-893-5722. I'd like to hear from you your favorite examples of street art in Los Angeles. Charles in South Los Angeles, good to have you with us. Hey, good morning, Larry. Thanks so much for taking my call, and thanks for discussing this topic. We own a commercial piece of property in the community, and it is frequently tagged by, um, we think, people who are belonging to gangs and that they are using these tags to identify what they consider to be their territory. Sometimes we've even had beautiful murals. Uh, we see beautiful murals in the community, and those get tagged, uh, too, like, uh, and they, they kind of desecrate the mural that's been, that's been uh, painted. So how do you, these folks who do this, who do this great art, how do you distinguish between what is considered acceptable graffiti, for example, as opposed to non-acceptable graffiti, like gang uh, territory signatures? Professor Block, you want to take that on? Yeah, you know, almost, I mean, it's really hard to find gang graffiti nowadays. I think when people see graffiti that they can't understand, they can't decipher, they can't make out, they immediately assume it's territorial, it's making a claim to space, and it's gang related. Most often, that's not the case. For me personally, and a lot of people like me, um, we don't distinguish between different types of graffiti. The fact that people are taking it upon themselves and choosing to mark walls, whether it be aesthetically pleasing in the form of a Judith Baca mural or in a, you know, a so-called scribble, which is not a thing, but a tag by an individual graffiti writer, to me and people like me, those are both expressions that people are out and active in the community lending their, their pigment to the walls. And that itself is a political act. So I personally have never called myself a graffiti artist. I call myself a graffiti writer because the, the politics of marking space in an unsanctioned way, that's the politics that's important. That's what gets conversations going. And I think that people and I think people are better at this nowadays, by the way, at taking a step back, saying, I don't understand what it means. I don't know what it's trying to convey, but I'm I'm in conversation with this pigment on a surface. And it's making me think about who has right, as Professor Phillips says, to public space and private space. So I kind of just okay. appreciate the people are marking walls. Man, one, I, you know, I, I think Charles raised a really important issue, though, about other work. Uh, being tagged. Mm -hmm. And so my assumption is if you've got a, you know, a mural that's, you know, uh, paying tribute to someone and it gets marked, for example, that, uh, uh, you know, a street artist wouldn't do that kind of thing, wouldn't disrespect someone's artwork, that that probably would be a territorial gang thing where they don't care about the artwork itself. But is that is that inaccurate? Uh, but well, yes and no. I mean, you know, the, the thing is, when you're painting on the streets, you know, um, there's 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 very little you can do to to stop the streets doing from what they're gonna, what they're gonna do, um, but you know there is a thing in graffiti that um, you know we have a hierarchy and we believe that like um, the tag is kind of the bottom rung right, and then there's a throw up, and then on top of that you could do a piece and a production or a mural. So there's kind of like a way that that we as graffiti artists uh, view it. Um, so a, another graffiti artist or graffiti writer you know shouldn't go over. Uh, a mural or a piece with a tag 
but it does happen, you know, whatever. Um, and then gangs, you know, they, when they tag on, on murals or pieces, that's also, you know, something that, that, that happens in the wild, you know. Um, that's why they have anti-graffiti anti coating. So I use that on a lot of my murals for, for that reason. You know, have you, you had your murals tagged? Yeah, I've had my murals tagged once in a while. But for the most part, I get hired because of the opposite. I get hired because they want me, they want the, the, the tagging in the area to, to decrease. Um, and, and really... The way, the way that happens is because you, when you bring in a piece of art, a mural or, or whatever, um, and, and it resonates with the people in the, in the neighborhood, they protect it. You know, I'm doing a, a series of murals that I just finished in, in Watts in the old Jordan Downs. Yeah. And um, it's being received great. You know, I mean, like um, I'm doing portraits of residents from from the area and the people love it, you know, including including the gangs that I'm working with and, and, and the kids and the abuelitas and everyone else in the neighborhood, you know. So it's it's part of respect as you see it on the street. So you know? you're having them posed for photos that then you're turning into murals? Is that how you're doing it? Exactly. I'm, I, it's, it's been over a year of this project. It was kind of like a, almost like a residency there. And, yeah, I took photos of people, met them, you know, had tons of community engagement events. And I have over 100 photos. Only about 30 of them or so were able to be, you know, yeah. uh, 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 transformed onto the how, walls. How large are these portraits of they, people you're They doing? go from 4 by 4 to, like, 8 feet by 15 feet, and there's probably, like I said, about uh, about 25 walls. Yeah. Wow. And where's the funding for that come from? So that was actually funded uh, through the developer, Bridge Housing, who went in there and, um, and you know, uh, wanted to do something for the community and wanted to engage with the residents. And, you know, obviously with the history of what Jordan Downs means to, to, to Watts, um, we want to do something positive. And so I came up with this idea, and I pitched it to them, and they funded it. Yeah. That's, that's great. How long a project is this for you to finish? Um, I just finished it, and it took me a little over two years to do wow. it, even though I got the original contract in 2019. Were you doing other stuff, too, or was this exclusive for no, the two I years? I was doing other things as well, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it was like a, it was, it was a really uh, yeah, great project that I did, actually. We're talking with the artist Man One about his work, artist Stefano Block, who's also a professor at U of A with us, and Susan Phillips from Pitzer College. Uh, Sara, in Silver Lake says there was a group of East L.A. Chicano street artists called OSCO in the late 70s who did a lot of politically important work. Um, uh, Professor Phillips, you want to talk about OSCO? Yeah, I mean, they were just an amazing, almost like a performance art group. And the, they they actually, I think they wrote some memorable graffiti, like right at LACMA or something. I can't I can't quite remember. But what I what I do remember is their uses of of public space and photography and sort of you know street theater in a sense um just pushing the boundaries of all that and um and yeah i mean that was a that was a great celebratory moment part of the chicano movement part of that sort of muralism aspect but in a way that was more performance based so that was that's definitely a, a great thing to point out um from the caller in silver lake uh, let me share some more uh, listener comments. Nancy in Garbanza, which is a part of Island Park, emailed, In the late 1960s, I worked in downtown L.A. driving to work early in the morning. I always looked for the building-sized painting I called The Old Woman of the 110. Seeing her every morning started my day right, like saying hello to an old friend. Uh, Rick uh, emailed us, Why is it most graffiti art is simply the artist's name? From tagging to more elaborate work, 
works, which can be very beautiful. It's usually just the name of the artist or the crew. Why not poetry or lyrics or stencils or illustrations or other examples of self-expression? Rick, thank you for that. Professor Block. You know, graffiti writers primarily are motivated by fame, um, you know, notoriety, adventure. That's what they're after. And that's what all people are after it's to some degree. So um, graffiti writers are, are putting their name up and they're doing it in an aesthetically pleasing way sometimes. Sometimes they're doing it in a cryptic way, but it's always about a conversation with surfaces, the legality of surfaces, the appropriate placement of surfaces, subcultural hierarchy. Um, that's what people are motivated by is that other people see their name and think about them. We're a very egotistical species in that way. Uh, we have Anne in the Pico Union District. I love the graffiti on the Oceanside Towers. I see those towers every time I walk out my front door. They were always a blight to look out. Now they're an amazing canvas for art. That's Anne in Pico Union. Uh, let's see, we have Mar in Los Feliz who emailed, why is this being treated as art? Graffiti isn't art. Graffiti is vandalism, full stop. These vandals should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. If the owner of the property has given you permission, that's fine. Otherwise, just don't do it. Art like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I sure as heck don't care for the garbage I see. That's Mar in Los Feliz. And we've got a question uh, from Christina and Tahunga. There was a police mural in downtown where someone had written assassins in Spanish, but the cover-up wasn't done well, so you could still read it for years and years. Uh, and let's see, we've got Austin who said, my favorite L.A. street art installation about 10 years ago. I remember the Griffith Park Tea House popping up overnight within Griffith Park, constructed of reclaimed redwood, recovered from the Griffith Park fire. The tea house was an ephemeral installation where hikers and explorers who happened to stumble upon it were invited to write their wishes onto paper and affix them to the house. The way I remember it, word of the installation spread on Twitter and seemed to be an early example of the guerrilla marketing many companies and brands would later use on social media platforms. Within a few days, the tea house was gone. The whole episode seemed uniquely L.A., a beautiful cross between nature and the urban landscape representative of the different cultures in L.A. It's Air Talk on L.A. at 89.3. We'll continue our conversation on street art in greater Los Angeles back in one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by guest Stefano Block of the University of Arizona, where he's professor and Susan Phillips, professor at Pitzer College, author of The City Beneath the Century of Los Angeles Graffiti. Uh, also, Professor Block is author of Going All City, Struggle and Survival in L.A.'s Graffiti Subculture, and Artist Man One is with us as well. We have a question from our producer, Manny Valladares, um, wondering how essential were New York graffiti magazines to getting Angelino graffiti artists' names out there, man? Uh, well, for me, I mean, I, the, the first magazines that I saw were... Um, probably coming out of L.A., um, Can Control Magazine, and there was other uh, magazines that that I saw. Um, but the book Spray Can Art that came from New York that was one that was like that was one of our Bibles. Subway Art was also uh, a, another book, but Spray Can Art spoke to um, the world. It spoke to like like artwork 
that was being painted like on walls, not just on subway trains. And since in LA, we don't have, at the time especially, we didn't have subways, I, I didn't really relate to that. But, um, you know, spray can art, you know, uh, for me was like the, the Bible, you know, it was written by uh, uh, Henry Shelfont and, um, and uh, Jim Pragoff, rest in peace. Um, but to me, that's, that's what inspired me, really, you know. You've been at this for more than 30 years and yeah. developing your art all this time. At what point did you find you could make a living from it? Um, well, it was funny because as soon as I started doing graffiti, within months, I, not that I knew I could do it, I was just like, I'm going to figure out how to do it <laughs> because I was hooked. I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I wanna... you better figure out how to support yourself. Exactly. With. And I remember the first time I got paid $50 to paint a garage door, I was like, this is it. Someone pay me 50 bucks. That means I can make 100 bucks. That means I can make 200 bucks. And it just snowballed from there, you know, still so doing pretty, it. Yeah, so pretty early on, you were able to support yourself as as your primary income as an artist? Well, I went to Loyola Marymount University, graduated in 1993, and this is all I've done ever since. One, wow. A full-time, uh, full-time artist. Uh, and Professor Block, can you speak to that issue of, of the commercial uh, prospects for people who are moving into this area of art? Yeah, you know, um, Gregory Schneider is actually, he's a sociologist. He's written a book about where graffiti writers go. And as he shows, you know, graffiti writers in, in, in the East Coast go into graphic design, tattooing, many different types of, you know, artistic endeavors that pay. Here on the West Coast, a lot of graffiti writers go into the film industry as set uh, designers or set dressers, uh, background dressers, or any kind of artistic endeavor, even into fashion and television writing. Uh, Sal Cayeros is a, is a former graffiti writer and now a television writer. So you kind of go into any kind of art supporting a realm and those are the most those are the biggest industries in places like new york and los angeles then there's people like me and, and a few others who have gone into academia you know robert vida is a professor at cal state la people like us who you know instead of writing graffiti now we're more likely to be writing about graffiti and talking about the the political import of writing on the walls in an unsanctioned way so really sky's the limit for a lot of people and man one is really somebody who's shown how to do it in a way that gives back to the community while also allowing him to get paid. So he's in a constant conversation with communities. And um, it's, it's, it's a great roadmap for a lot of other people who have followed him, a lot of graffiti writers becoming traditional muralists over the years. Jaime emailed, what's the correlation between the history of hobo language and current political activism in graffiti? Professor Phillips? Um. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, first of all, stylistic carryovers. And I think that, you know, it goes back to an earlier point that uh, Professor Block was making about, you know, belonging and, and the idea of the ego and the me. Um, in hobo writing, you get this, you know, the this sort of birth of the me and the we. So it's always this, it's always the, it's always the individual and the collective together. There's certain, you know, stylistic things that come up. There's a whole grammar. There's, you know, all these, and some of those elements, which were nationwide carry over into, um, into graffiti today, um, you know, crosses and pluses and, and quotation marks, the way people use negative letters. There's like a lot of detailed things. In terms of, of the closest thing we have to hobo graffiti, you know, there's still a, a robust um, writing on the walls by people who are, you know, without without houses, right? And and that's a fairly unconstrained genre of graffiti today. 
um, you know, they're writing on walls because they actually don't have walls of their own. And that's partly, I think, the carryover that he might be okay. thinking of. Yeah, could be. Could be. Professor Phillips, thank you so much. Susan Phillips, professor of environmental analysis at Pitzer College, author of The City Beneath. Um, man One, longtime graffiti writer here in Los Angeles. And Stefano Block, professor at the University of Arizona and author of Going All City. Thank you all so much. Um, we have Trey in West L.A. who said, significant piece on the West Side, a brilliantly executed portrait of Anthony Bourdain in Santa Monica. Great tribute to him and Jam in Boyle Heights. We own a business here. Someone painted a beautiful mural on our building. Since then, we don't get tagged anymore. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Much more to come in Hour 2. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to be with you today. Coming up later this hour, we're going to uh, be talking about turning down promotions. If you turned down a promotion, and we're so glad that you did so, be interested to hear what factors went into your decision. If you turned down a promotion and came to regret it later, would like to hear about what what you realized in the aftermath of not taking that opportunity in your work, or if you're facing that decision right now and you're weighing multiple factors, we'll actually have an expert with me who'll be able to give you advice on how to weigh the pluses and minuses of that promotion being offered to you. That's coming up later this hour on Air Talk. But right now, we're going to talk about a piece in the Los Angeles Times by staff writer David Wharton, which I thought was just a great idea. So David took input from Times readers on the worst parking lots in greater Los Angeles. And there are some doozies. I think I know most of these lots and have suffered in them. Probably many of you have too. But I would love to expand it beyond the ones that David had space for for profiling in the Los Angeles Times. So if you would like to nominate a truly awful parking lot and are prepared to tell us specifically why it's particularly poorly designed or the flow isn't right or people behave terribly in it, please give us a call. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. David Wharton, great to have you back with us today on Air Talk. It's good to be with you again, Larry. This was such a great idea for a piece. Is this something that you thought up? 
No, I have to give the credit on this one to my editor, uh, Ben Musig. He was the one. Uh, uh, we're always looking for stories that we can try to tell with both words and, and visual aspects, and, and we thought this would be great. I love it. Well, we are just around the corner from one that is a notorious parking lot, the original Trader Joe's on Arroyo Parkway in Pasadena, just south of um, of uh, California Boulevard. It it is the big thing with that is it's just a fraction of the size that it needs to be to be able to accommodate uh, all the traffic in in that area. Um, I, have you struggled with that parking lot? I'm not that one, but we have uh, some other Trader Joe's around <laughs> us uh, that, that we have. They seem to be one of the ones. I mean, I think when you talk to most people who live in Southern California, usually Trader Joe's and an In-N-Out burger are, are, oh, pretty yeah. much, are pretty high on the list, maybe a Costco, too. Yeah, one of the early uh, In-N-Outs, uh, also a Pasadena location, is on um, Walnut in Pasadena, right near Craig. And there is just a little stand right on the street so all the cars have to go down the street you know blocking parking spaces ingress and egress of the businesses that surround it i mean you would never build it like that today but uh yeah in and out things that are extremely popular by definition parking is a problem yeah i mean and and you know the thing that that i was surprised about you know i, I sat down with this this parking expert gordon meth um for, he's based on the east coast and and he says most of these lots are designed sort of by developers um, who who may, you know, just are thinking about how to arrange a certain number of spots at a certain space, and they don't take into effect traffic flow. I mean, I think a lot of us, when we think of parking lots, the first thing we think about is, like, are the slots too skinny or too short, or how wide are the aisles? But, but, uh, but the expert I spoke with said really more important is traffic flow and pedestrian flow, and how if that's not kind of well-coordinated, that really helps clog things up. And even even small parking lots uh, can be improved if you sort of try to get that traffic flow in hand and, and get cars and people moving through more efficiently. All right, let's hear from listeners. David Wharton of the L.A. Times with us, who did this piece on L.A.'s worst parking lots, and uh, we figure out how to fix them is the title of that piece. Marco in Westchester with a parking lot that I was just in about a week ago, and yes, it's truly terrible. Marco, go ahead. Hi. Yeah, so within our family and uh, friend group, there's this parking lot that we all kind of joke around. It's on Lincoln and Mindanao. That's the Ralph's parking lot with the California Pizza Kitchen in there. Yes, yes. And the bottom line is, is it, it's so there's so many stores and restaurants and such a limited amount of uh, parking that it's just it's kind of a nightmare to go in and out of. Yeah. And then when you have it wedged between Lincoln and the marina, it makes it even more complicated. And that's even with two Ralphs about a block apart, and it's still terrible. Oh, so you're familiar. Absolutely. Yeah, my my mother just moved to Marina Del Rey. That's how I happen to be in that parking lot um, with her, so I know exactly what you're talking about, that Ralph slot. But, yeah, it's strange. You have two Ralph stores that are just uh, about a block or two apart, and both parking lots are challenging. Marco, thank you. I appreciate it. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. What would you nominate 
for the worst parking lot in Southern California. And I'd like to hear from some of you in the Coachella Valley. You've got to have some awful ones there uh, in Santa Barbara, Ventura County, Orange County, Inland Empire. I'd like to hear about the worst parking lot that you have been to. That uh, And if there's one that was fixed, if there's one that used to be terrible, but they figured out a way to actually make it easier to use or more intuitive to drive through and to find a spot, I'd be interested in hearing what that fix was. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. So, David, what are some of the fixes that that stores can can employ to make these lots better? Well, I think the main thing is trying to make a parking lot more like the streets we drive on. You know, we're used to to being, you know, fairly orderly and, and coordinated when we're on streets. We have signage. We know where to go, where to turn, when to stop. But then when we get into... Um, into parking lots, it looks like our, our brain just drops away and it's like it's a free for all. And so really one of the most important things you can do is create signage and, and so that people are kind of confident, as you said just a minute ago, about where to go and how to get there and when to stop and when to turn and and uh, and, and also having kind of clearly marked crosswalks and, and walkways that can take people to the back of the lot because sometimes you go to these lots and it's a zoo up front close to the store and there's empty spaces in back. And it might be because people don't really feel safe or, or aren't being encouraged to you know, use that back space and then be able to walk directly to the store. So a lot of it comes down to markings and signage. Yeah, very good point. 866-893-5722. And I'm not a huge fan of parking structures, but I have to say if I need to park in a structure, I sure like the ones that have the display of how many spaces are available per floor because, David, that's a huge uh, time cutter, and you don't get people just following each other on floors that don't have any spaces available. Yeah, and, and I especially like the ones that have added the lights down the aisle oh, yeah. where you can see where the empty spot is. So yeah. so you know, you know, you know exactly where you're going. I I'm always one of those people. I always drive to the farthest part of the lot or to the top floor because I just hate circling around uh, looking for a spot that's close. My wife's a little different. Sometimes she tries to find the closer spots, but I'm impatient. So yeah. I just go for where I think there's going to be an empty spot and I'll walk it. I'm I'm like you. I'd rather take the walk. I think that's faster than often, uh, as you say, circling around for something close. Ralph in Woodland Hills, your nominee for worst parking lot. Uh, it's a landslide victory for SoFi Stadium, Larry. And it's my terrible. question is, how does a brand-new massive facility strike out, uh, or no pun intended, so miserably in the area of parking? Yeah, it's truly terrible, Ralph. You're right. Well, I think the big problem in SoFi is there's just not enough of it because supposedly people were going to pay take public transit, but of course there there isn't an easy way yet. Once the Inglewood line is built, that'll make it much more convenient. But it was a case everybody was so gung-ho on the stadium and transit wasn't uh, set up to articulate to the stadium at, at that point. But our stadiums are some of the worst places, David. And of course, Dodger Stadium is is nationally notorious for parking. Yeah, it is. And it was really interesting because um I have family in from out of town. So we took the kids to Disneyland last week and we were really struck by how, when you go to that, that 
just probably the biggest parkade in, in the world. It's just three <laughs> blocks long or whatever it is. But it's so well organized. Of course, they have a lot of manpower. They have people waving you to places and, the, and they fill it up. You don't really choose. They, you know, they sort of guide you like a maitre d' to your spot. But um, you get in and out of that so relatively quickly. And we were thinking like, boy, you know, this is, this is as many people, 50,000 people as would go to a football game. Um, but you, you really see that an efficiently run parking lot can, can be a breeze compared to what we get you know, when we're sitting after a Dodger game trying to get out and uh, you know, waiting for a half an hour just to get out of the lot. Yeah, uh, it's just terrible. Uh, Evelyn, our engineer, says the Hollywood Bowl, which, of course, yeah. we have so many nominees for this. Jamie in Palm Springs, share with us one in your community. Yeah, I uh, am in Palm Springs, and the uh, Ralphs at Ramon and uh, Sunrise has got an absolutely atrocious parking lot. Uh, with very poor ingress and egress, and uh, it's bad for pedestrians, too. There's no good way to walk to the stores. Uh, it's just it, it's kind of a ridiculous setup and uh, uh, just not a very good place. Uh, a funny anecdote, I had uh, was in the U.K. Uh, in Scotland uh, last fall, and did fine with the driving on the other side of the road. It really worked out okay, with the exception of a big box parking lot, you know, with, a you know, the uh, equivalent of a, of a, uh, you know, uh, Walmart and, and, and Home Depot and so forth. And I absolutely could not figure that one out. <laughs> people walking weirdly and people driving weirdly. It was just, it was miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Cult- cultural challenge. Jamie, thank you so much. Appreciate it. 866-893-5722. Paul in Pasadena, worst lot you've found. Hey, good morning, Larry. I was just down at Costco in Alhambra on Sunday, and that's always a challenge kind of getting in and out of those other businesses and the kind of the, the plex they're in. But they've closed about a third of the parking lot in the rear due to resurfacing, and it's quite a nightmare. It took me over 20 minutes to jockey with others for a parking spot. So that's my uh, share for uh, this topic. Paul, thank you. And I think uh, that that Alhambra Costco, David, it made your list, didn't it? Oh, yeah, I, I would probably put that at the top of the list just because it's such a huge lot and you would think it wouldn't be that much of a problem, but it was madness. And, and there was literally bumper to bumper cars moving along the rows and, and you know, people just scattered everywhere with these carts that are obviously Costco overflowing with stuff. And it, it was, comp- as one of, the, one of the shoppers I interviewed said, it was kind of a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, we have so many uh, listener comments on this. John in Fullerton emailed Cal State Fullerton has about 20,000 cars descending on campus every Tuesday and Thursday, all looking for a spot before class. It's soul-crushing. Lots of universities have this parking mess, but Cal State Fullerton has the unfortunate mix of being the state's largest university on the smallest footprint. So true. Uh, Our Sharon McNary says, Shake Shack of Crystal Cove off PCH, super popular if you don't mind paying $7 for a shake, but only a dozen or so parking spots. It was well-striped, but cars kept driving in, realizing there was no space, and then having to back out onto Coast Highway. (laughs) Sharon, yeah, that is a tiny, tiny lot. Um, Larry and Alhambra said, I've heard most Trader Joe's, especially older ones, have crowded lots because Trader Joe's was looking to cut costs by renting spaces with less parking. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that. 
that. I think a lot of it, Larry, is just that uh, they are older locations and parking lots were generally smaller. If you go to the East Pasadena Trader Joe's, which um, took over, I think, what had been a movie theater, if I recall, on that place, it's got an enormous parking lot. Very easy to park and to shop at that one. Um, but again, it's it's a, it's a newer location and a place that had much bigger parking to begin with. Walter and Sherman Oaks emailed three lots come to mind. Santa Anita Mall, simply a nightmare. The Costco Alhambra, which is becoming famous here. And most recently, the Century City Mall lot, a nightmare. Additionally, sadly, any older Trader Joe's, Encino and South Pasadena, to name a few. At least the South Pasadena Trader Joe's, there is some street parking nearby, which helps that one quite a bit. Sue and West L.A. emailed, Santa Monica's public lot across from the Monica Theater on second flow is terrible. It's confusing when it's crowded. It takes forever to get out. Patrick in West Hollywood emailed, the Beverly Hills public parking in the corner of Bedford and little Santa Monica is kind of scary. People honk, yell, scream, jump on other people's cars. My spouse is a psychiatrist who used to practice across the street, would always joke, that parking lot always brought him business. Um, Maggie and El Sereno emailed Alhambra Costco. Traffic flow into, within, and exiting is horrible. Even with the additional parking recently added because of the demolition of the old Sizzler and Soup Plantation, people still manage to drive insanely. Carol in Manhattan Beach, Grand Central Market, has the most insanely narrow spaces. They aren't angled, impossible to avoid door dings. Yeah, Carol, I gave up on the Grand Central Market garage and I paid a park at a surface lot across the street. it To me, it's worth the few extra bucks because I find that garage at Grand Central just just terrible. And Sharon McNary adds uh, that if stores would put bike parking racks inside premises in a faraway corner where nobody can keep an eye on it, more shoppers might use bikes to get there, easing demands uh, for car parking. All right, Sharon, thank you so much. I appreciate all the great input on this, David. Thank you so much. A terrific piece. You going to do a follow-up on this by any chance? I might have to. I've been getting so much response for it. Uh, but there's a million of them out there. Yeah, there so are. Like you could do the book, uh, David Wharton's Bye. book on the worst lots in L.A. Thanks so much for coming on talking about your article in The Times. Appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. David Wharton, staff writer for the Los Angeles Times. His recent piece, L.A.'s Worst Parking Lots, we figure out how to fix them. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Coming up, we'll be talking about Freakonomics, the podcast. Stephen Dubner is going to be with us, who is the host. We're going to talk about an upcoming series to be aired on LA, it's 89.3, on the life and work of Nobel laureate Richard Feynman, the theoretical physicist, spent many years at Caltech. That's when we come back in a minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up later this hour, turning down the offer of a promotion. If you did it, did you come to regret it later or pat yourself on the back for making a sound decision? If you're in the throes of such a decision now, I'd like to know what you're weighing, and we're going to have an expert who perhaps can offer some sound advice to help you through that process. But right now, we turn our attention to Freakonomics Radio. It's a weekly series that airs here on LAS 89.3, Saturday mornings at 10. Uh, it looks at a wide range of, of questions about the hidden state of everything, and joining us is the host of Freakonomics Radio, Stephen Dubner. Stephen, thanks so much. Good to have you with us today. Hey, good morning, Larry. Great to be with you. So let's talk about the three-part series that just debuted last Saturday on theoretical physicist, Nobel laureate Richard Feynman of Caltech. Is the timing of this at all, uh, you know, in all the, the wake of the popularity of Oppenheimer? Actually, not at all. <laughs> I wish I wish I could say I had that much forethought. Um this was a series that had been brewing in my head for five years, 20 years. I mean, I, I like a lot of people, have been reading Feynman and admiring things about Feynman for a long time. He died in 1988, so I didn't really get started on him until after he was gone. But it struck me, the more I thought about him and what he stood for, a, a certain kind of pursuit of science, that he was sort of the role model we need today and don't know it. Um, in other words, there's so much conversation in, um, you know, in our, our political realm and the media realm, social media and so on about important topics that are often um, discussed without any <laughs> underpinning of, of fact, without any underpinning of an understanding of, between cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And Feynman, in a way, was exactly the opposite. He was a, a, a real scientist who understood how hard it is to determine even one small truth, much less pretend to know much, much larger truths. And so, um, you know, Bill Gates once called Feynman the greatest teacher I never had. And over the years, I began to realize the same might be true for me. I had... Uh, kind of osmotically taken in a lot of Feynman's approach to the world, to having an unbridled curiosity and enthusiasm for learning how things actually work. And so we began work on the series a long yeah. time ago. It didn't get going for real until maybe a little over a year ago when I when I was in I was going to be in Pasadena and I decided to go to the Caltech archives and look through the Feynman files there and also to meet with Michelle Feynman, his daughter who still lives 
in the area. And that's what yeah. got it kickstarted. So I wish I could say that I was smart enough to harness my, uh, <laughs> to my predict Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer was coming. I cannot, yeah. I can't imagine Stephen, how voluminous the, the uh, Feynman archives are at Caltech. And I, I know Michelle and what a wonderful font she is of, of information about her dad. Uh, but let's listen to this uh, from Freakonomics Radio, the three-part series on Richard Feynman here in the first episode. Um, Feynman recalls an early interaction with his father demonstrating his deep curiosity. My father had taught me to notice things. And one day when I was playing with what we call an express wagon, which is a little wagon which has a railing around it for children to play with that they can pull around. It had a ball in it. I remember this. It had a ball in it. And I pulled the wagon and I noticed something about the way the ball moved. So I went to my father and I said, say, Pop, I noticed something. When I pull the wagon, the ball rolls to the back of the wagon. It rushes to the back of the wagon. And when I'm pulling along and I suddenly stop, the ball rolls to the front of the wagon. I said, why is that? And he said, that, he says, nobody knows. He said, the general principle is that things that are moving try to keep on moving. And things that are standing still tend to stand still unless you push on them hard. And he says, this tendency is called inertia, but nobody knows why it's true. Now, that's a deep understanding. Stephen, one of the things I love here, aside from the account of what an inquisitive young boy uh, Richard Feynman was, is you hear in that clip so well what a great speaker he is in regular person terms. And, you know, this later would come into play when he headed up the investigation in the Spatial Challenger disaster, um, his books that he wrote, because he was a, a popular writer as well, not just, you know, writing um, in, in for journals. Is he an incredible ability to communicate. Yeah, I mean, as a New Yorker myself, I like to think that it comes from his New York lineage where, you know, time is tight and you got to say what you got to say. But but it was more than that, Larry. You're right. He he was a great communicator. And to be fair, one of the reasons he became and remains much more popular than many other scientists is because he was a good communicator. He was also funny. He also knew how to tell stories. And, you know, you could say, well, that's lucky or he grew up in a storytelling environment. But, you know, there's also a lot of research that shows that storytelling is indeed one of the most powerful ways to pass on information. A lot of really smart people, including the kinds of people I interview for Freakonomics Radio all the time, many of them academics, so they run institutions and so on. Many of them are brilliant beyond belief, but they have a hard time unpacking and expressing important ideas, and, and they also have a hard time conveying why an important idea is actually important. Those are all things that Feynman did well, and we could talk for months about where that storytelling tradition comes from in history. It goes, obviously, way, 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 way back. What I do think is important for all of us to know is that when you are trying to get across your point, not necessarily win an argument, but get across your point, um, data can be powerful. Data and statistics can be powerful. But most people, after they hear two or three entries, they start to kind of zone out a little bit. Theory can be powerful, especially with people whose minds revolve around a, a sort of theoretical progression, especially with cause and effect. For most people, however, storytelling is what wins the day. So this is a bit of a paradox because in Washington, we hear a lot of people tell a lot of stories. 
unfortunately, they unfortunately they don't contain uh, much data and much theory. So what this series is really an argument for is a way of um, conducting an honest inquiry into anything. Could be science, could be politics, could be poverty, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, that contains all those things, contains the data and the statistics, contains empirical evidence, even contains theory. But when put in a story form, it becomes particularly powerful. And that's something that Feynman did, not just about what we think of as theoretical physics, but the natural world generally. And also he was, a, I think, a great observer of, of human behavior as well. We're, we're talking with the host of Freakonomics Radio, Stephen Dupner, joining us. You hear Stephen Saturday mornings at 10 here on LAS 89.3. Just launched a three-part series on theoretical physicist, Nobel laureate Richard Feynman of Caltech. The episode's titled The Curious Mr. Feynman. We just heard an example of that. The Brilliant Mr. Feynman. And finally, The Vanishing Mr. Feynman. All three episodes are available as uh, part of the podcast wherever you get your audio. Let's listen to another uh, clip of Richard Feynman recalling an interaction he had with a scientist who was also on that Trinity test team at Los Alamos. After the thing went off, there was a tremendous excitement at Los Alamos. Everybody had parties. We all ran around. I sat on the end of a Jeep and beat drums and so on. Except for one man that I remember, his name was Bob Wilson, who got me into it in the first place. He's sitting there moping. He says, what are you moping about? He says, it's a terrible thing we made. I said, but you started, you got us into it. You see, what happened to me, and what happened to the rest of us, is we started for a good reason. But then we're working very hard to do something, and to accomplish it is a pleasure, is excitement. And you don't stop to think any, you know, you just stop. After you thought at the beginning, you stop thinking. So he was the only one who was still thinking about it at that particular moment. Stephen, what role did Feynman play uh, in in the whole project and uh, bringing about the bomb? Well, he was a he was a lower level uh, participant, especially at the beginning. He was a computational expert. Um, he was, you know, he was known to be one of the best human computers around. But he then organized other human computers to do a lot a lot of the work around the construction of the bomb. But he also was um, I don't want, you know court gesture is not the right phrase, but he was he was the young physicist on board who was willing to speak up when the elders were discussing their their best ideas. Um, we don't really get into too much of this in detail in this series, but if you if you read Feynman, if, if you read other accounts of the Manhattan Project, you'll know that he was the noisy kid, really. He was in his early 20s from with the with the kind of brusque Queens, New York manner who would often sit in the beginning at the back of the room when these people are present are, are talking about ideas and he would say, ah, that'll never work. And, you know, prima facie, you might think that was an idiotic thing to do. And some people did perhaps think he was a bit of, a bit of an idiot for, for doing this. But it turns out he was often right. And so the elder statesman realized that he had fantastic mind. And, and so he became increasingly more involved as the project went on. As you heard a little bit of in that clip, however, he, like Oppenheimer and like many of the others, uh, when it was over, when the bombs were dropped on Japan, they were really in a, their minds were spinning because, of course, the Manhattan Project was conceived to beat Germany to the punch. Germany had by that point crumbled and surrendered, and then the bombs were used to end the war with Japan. But this put Feynman and others into a real 
depressive existential funk. And Feynman's belief immediately after the war was that there's no sense in doing anything anymore. He tells these stories about going back to New York, seeing people carrying on with their daily lives, seeing people designing and building bridges, building buildings, and saying to himself, what are they thinking? Now that the bomb exists, other people will have it and the world is over. There's no way that this is going to not wipe our species off the face of the earth. So in that way, Feynman thankfully was wrong, at least for these past you know, 70, 80 years. But his funk was really deep. It lasted quite a while. His wife had died. His young wife had died while he was at Los Alamos. And the argument that we make in this series is that what really, I don't want to say rescued him, but really helped him re hit reset was Pasadena. When he was invited to come take a teaching job at Caltech, he jumped at it. He was teaching at Cornell at the time in upstate New York. Is this 1950 really became... or so when he arrives? That sounds about right. He taught at Cornell a few years after the war. Yeah. Then he taught for, yeah, that's about right. 38 years he taught at Caltech, died in, in 1988. And so I think California matched who he was and didn't know it. Open-minded, a lot of people um, willing to try things that weren't the norm toward the end of his life. He spent some time up at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, further expanding his mind. So California <laughs> yeah. was a fantastic fit for Richard Feynman. Takes up the bongos. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's definitely, he's, he's sort of the counterculture uh, theoretical physicist. But let's uh, play a selection of, of the Challenger disaster investigation, which he headed the presidential commission. This, you know, it's very famous when he demonstrated what happened with the O-ring on the Challenger, which led to that tragedy. Here, Feynman explains that simple experiment that he conducted on national television, which uh, showed very graphically what caused the shuttle to explode. Oh, I took the stuff that I got out of your seal and I put it in ice water. And I discovered that when you put some pressure on it for a while and then undo it, it maintains, it doesn't stretch back, it stays the same dimension. In other words, for a few seconds at least, and more seconds than that, there's no resilience in this particular material when it's at a temperature of 32 degrees. I believe that has some significance for our problem. Now, this is a late career Feynman. We're almost out of time, Stephen Dovener of Freakonomics Radio. But, but this may be his most famous from a public consciousness period of his life. Yeah, and this was a presidential commission that President Reagan had asked the chairman, William Rogers, to essentially go easy on NASA, which ran the shuttle launch. And Feynman was having none of it. Um, he was respectful of NASA, he loved NASA, but he also believed that, um, you know, truth is most important and truth should win out. And so he went out on a limb. It turned out to be the most um, significant moment of that um, commission hearing. I should say Feynman was not the person to discover the O-ring problem. There were others. There were people at Morton Thiokol, which was the, the manufacturer of the solid rocket boosters. There were others at NASA engineers and so on. But yeah, he, um, he did what scientists should do, what I wish we had more people willing and able to do today which is stand up, speak truth to power with evidence and uh, and win the argument. So, yeah, it's, right. it was a, a good moment in a dark history there. 
Stephen, thank you so much for coming on, talking about this three-part series. The first has aired on Atlantis. You can hear the remaining two Saturday morning at 10 o'clock as a part of Freakonomics Radio, a look at the life and the influence of Richard Feynman, the Nobel-winning theoretical physicist based at Caltech for so much of his career. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Larry. Thank you. In addition to wearing on LAS 89.3 Saturday mornings at 10, all of the episodes of Freakonomics Radio are available wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, we're going to talk about offers of promotions that get turned down. How do you decide whether you should accept a promotion or not? It's not always the best career move, certainly not always the right one for your state of mind and for your health, physical or mental. If you're someone who is in that decision-making position right now, we want to hear from you at 866-893-5722. We're going to talk about turning down or accepting promotions when we come back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. NBR's Here and Now coming up shortly. And a look at some of the demographic changes taking place in Pennsylvania. The Latino population growing considerably in that swing state of Pennsylvania. But the composition politically of uh, Latino residents there might surprise you. We'll find out about what that impact is politically later on NPR's Here and Now. But right now, we take a look at the offer of promotions and uh, whether it's something that we should think twice about. A recent piece in The Atlantic, Think Twice Before Taking the Top Job, looks at this issue and the pros and cons of accepting a promotion. Joining us is Melody Wilding, executive coach and author of Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking, and Channel Your Emotions for Success at Work. Melody, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You know, I think there's a reassessment for many people about uh, the role of their careers and their jobs in their life, finding work-life balance and and the like, since the onset of the pandemic. And I wonder, has that affected people's willingness to accept promotions that are offered? Absolutely. When the pandemic came around and all of a sudden we could, and many of us were working 24-7, you're right, that led to a reassessment of how does work fit into our life or how does life fit around work? 
And since then, now more than ever, I'm seeing people really question whether they want a promotion, more responsibility, more pressure, managing more people that comes along with that. I was having a conversation with an extended family member over over the uh, end of year holidays, and and uh, to my surprise, she had accepted managerial position over multiple locations of a of a business where she had been working in a lower level job, almost kind of easing toward retirement, really enjoying it, talking about how much less stress and how much she enjoyed it. And I said, "Why in the world did you accept this job of overseeing multiple locations and taking this promotion? I thought you were." She she said, my ego, she said, I could, I knew I could do the job better than the person doing it. And I just couldn't say no. And, and this was someone who she didn't need to take it, but as she said, it was her ego that led her to do it. How often do you think people accept promotions for that reason? Well, it is nice to be wanted and to have people say, we're going to give you more money. Of course, that that's always very appealing. I think it also has to do with the way we're conditioned. We're brought up to believe that you always want to be climbing the next rung and that getting to the next level is the definition of being successful in your career. And so I think it's very natural for people to either be, like you were saying, motivated by your ego and wanting to have more prestige, more power, more influence. But I think it's also just this default response that if I'm not ascending the ladder, well, then what do I do? What what does success look like if I'm not doing that? Also, I wonder about, you know, wanting to please, because even if it's not a job that you might yourself like to hear, hey, we really need you. We really know you could do well in this position. You could really make a difference here. That kind of, you know, makes it harder for some people to say no when presented that way. It does, especially if you've worked at the company for a while or you're going to be taking parts of your team with you, you may feel an obligation, even if it clashes with what your personal goals or what you want your career to look like in the long term. I'd love to hear from AirTalk listeners. If you're in this position right now where you're considering an offer to accept what is a promotion or to perhaps go somewhere else for a job that's a de facto promotion because it's more responsibility, I'd like to hear what you're considering. And you can get the advice of Melody Wilding, author of Trust Yourself. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name, and Melody is here to answer your questions and to, to you know, give you advice on this. We're going to hear some tips for her, you know, when it might be time to turn down that promotion, what to consider to really feel comfortable with before you accept it. And I would welcome hearing from you what you learned from a promotion that you might have turned down, either positive or negative, 866-893-5722. So, Melody, what advice do you have when we're in that position, something is being offered to us, what should we consider before saying yes or no? First and foremost, you have to evaluate what you want out of your career. When you think about your one, three, five-year vision, where you want to be in the future, what does that look like? Because for your family member, perhaps they did see that they want to leave an impact or a legacy before they retire. Many of my clients, though, do that exercise and they realize 
I don't want to manage a bigger team. I don't want to be traveling or dealing with executive escalations. Many of them through that realize, actually, I want to stay the practitioner. I want to, I want to stay being the subject matter expert. And that may point to perhaps making a lateral move versus taking a promotion. So doing that self-discovery is always the first step. All right. And and does instinct come into this at all? Do you do you think instinct is worth much if you're offered a promotion and you immediately feel hesitation about it? You're not uniformly thrilled. I, I mean, is that something you need to attend to? Well, I wrote a book called Trust Yourself for a reason. So, <laughs> yes, I believe intuition plays a big role. But there's a difference between fear Fear is often motivated by a push motivation. To your point earlier, the feeling that you should take it. It's what you're supposed to do. If you don't take it, you're going to miss out on some big opportunity or people will judge you. That's a push and fear motivated decision versus one that is motivated by instinct, intuition, whatever you want to call it, has more of a pull motivation, which it may feel scary, it may feel daunting, but you feel pulled towards it nevertheless, because you know that in the long run, it's going to be in your best interest, even if you're scared in this very moment. Again, I'd love to hear from listeners. We'd love to hear how you knew as you were deciding on a promotion that was offered that it wasn't right for you. How did you navigate all these factors, your own ego, your sense of where you should be? I put that in quotation marks at a particular point in your career, fear about sabotaging uh, opportunities that, that you would hope for, even if this wasn't what you really wanted to do in the current offer, that maybe you would be sabotaging other offers that you really would want. How did you go through and navigate all this? 866-893-5722 or email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Executive Coach Melody Wilding with us, author of Trust Yourself. Stop overthinking and channel your emotions for success at work. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. How to know when the best decision is to turn down a promotion. Allison emailed us. I was an assistant on Wall Street for a well-known financial firm. I worked there 12 years and was offered a promotion to the coveted financial analyst position every year. Even though I would have been starting at two and a half times my salary, I turned it down as I was newly married, had just moved to New York City. I moved there to enjoy the city, not sit at a desk for 18 hours a day. Allison, thank you for that. Christina in Laguna Hills emailed, I'm an electronics technician. I've been involved in product testing for decades. My former employer, I was the hands-on person. My co-worker handled the regulatory agencies, paperwork, scope of testing, so on. She moved to marketing, and my company offered me a, quote, promotion that was both our jobs combined. I knew it was too much for one person. After saying no multiple times and explaining why I was saying no, they did hire a replacement for the other person who went to marketing, and we both ended up very busy. Christina, thank you so much. Victor in Long Beach, you're on air talk. Hello. Hi, hi, Victor. Hi, how's it going? Good, good. Go right ahead, please, with your comment. 
sure. I just have a quick uh, story to tell. So I am an accountant and I was working for this company and I was hired in as a, an accounting director. You know, very easy job for me to do with the experience that I have. The company was trying to go IPO, which is initial public offering, meaning you go buy stock for that company. And in, it was required to have a, a chief financial officer or CFO. And my boss told me, you, you're going to have to jump in into the role. It was a very small company. And I, and I had to do it. There was no choice. And I knew I was not ready. That's a very prestigious position for any accountant and, to get, right? So I was excited, but at the same time, I was scared. Yeah. And I did it for a year. Um, it, was, it, was, it was tough. I, I, I really struggled with my mental health, dealing with investors and things like that. And then, I, you know, I'm in a different job right now um, as a financial controller, and I love it. And I, and I have a good you know, life right now. But I remember having to take that promotion and knowing that it was not right for me. And so when you, you know, started the, the topic this morning, I was like, I would love to share that because yeah. if, if anyone ever finds themselves in that position, I will advise find another job. <laughs> yeah, so in hindsight, you wish you wouldn't have done the CFO job for a year? Yeah, I wish, you know, and, and here's the thing. It was like uh, almost $50,000 more than I was making before. Wow. Even being paid on the on the lower end. So the, the salary was great and the prestige, the, you know, the prestige that comes with being a CFO. Sure. It, it's quite, quite a thing. Uh, very few accountants ever get to that level in, in their careers. And for me, and I was very young. I was 36 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it felt nice to tell people I was that and, and I was doing that. And learning that, but now that I think about it, it's like it really took a I don't know the life out of me for a year, and I wish I hadn't done it, even for the money or the prestige. Yeah, it's just not for me, you know. Victor, thank you. I really appreciate you sharing that experience, Melody Wilding. Your your thoughts about what he went through? Yeah, I would say it's it's very common to be thrust into a role like that. I, I often have clients where the company will say, "We've created this new role just for you," which again can be very flattering. But I love when we heard from uh, one of the writers, I think it was Allison, yes. who mentioned that she did her research in advance. She, uh, and I would always recommend to speak to the person who's going to be your potential boss, your colleagues, try to assess fit and chemistry, and also try to get an understanding for what are the expectations. Because you may speak to two different stakeholders, and they may have wildly different uh, expectations for the role. And that can give you a good idea that the company may not even know what they're looking for out of this role, which can give you a signal to be a bit more cautious. Or if I was coaching someone in Victor's position at the time he was making that choice, I maybe would have advised could you offer doing a interim role, perhaps three to six months where you agree to take on the role and then you propose at that point, you reevaluate to see if it's still a fit, if you need additional resources, what have you. I wonder, Melody, as well about, um, you know, with people, I think, being more conscious about saying, well, you know, I might accept this position you're offered, but, but you know, here are some of the terms I would need considered and and limits on hours, things like that, that companies that are anxious to fill those positions, especially with a labor shortage, might well say, oh, yeah, you can, you know, you can do this job in 50 hours a week or whatever, you know, whatever it is. How do, how do you sort of get a sense of whether that's really going to be doable once you have to do the job? Mm. Uh, Of course, everyone makes big promises (laughs) during that interview stage that may not always come to fruition. 
And the best thing I can advise is to get those things in writing and to get on the calendar a time when you will be evaluating or making sure that that promise comes to fruition. So let's say, for example, I just had a client who was offered a very big role and she said, I can only take this if we agree to hire two additional team members to help me. And everyone is yesing her and saying, sure, 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 we'll make that happen. But, or rather I should say, so she got that in writing that those people have agreed to that. And she's put a calendar on, or she's put a date on the calendar for about 90 days from now to revisit those conversations and to kick off the hiring process. So there's some accountability built in there. When I got the first senior producer, it was actually the first producer at all on AirTalk because I began by self-producing the program. But when Linda started on the show and and, uh, we worked together for 20 years before she retired, she said, you know, I would I would love to help you do the show. But I have two young boys and there are times I need to during the day do things with their school. I you know, if they get sick, I may need to leave. So I need you to understand that there are times that being a parent, I'm going to need to respond to that. And so I I knew that going in. I knew that that was going to be, and this is a time before there were a lot of the legal protections for parental obligations that there are now. But we made that agreement because she was so valuable to the program, and and I completely understood this before I, we'd had our child. I understood what it meant to be a parent and those obligations, and, and that did come into play, and sometimes that was that was challenging, but it was great that she was very explicit up front about that. And um, you know, again, fortunately, we have many much more that's explicit in the law with that. But a melody, I assume there are many other things like that that really need to be talked through. Oh yes, now is the time to be explicit about expectations. As you were saying, you're you're in a position of higher leverage when you're asked to take a promotion because they want you. And if you can frame some of those requests that you have in terms of how is this going to help you be more effective, better at your job, perform, uh, meet the goals that have set out for you. For example, your colleague, I'm sure if she had said, you know, if I'm able to spend time with my kids, that means I can bring my 110 percent. And as a parent, bringing all that expertise into segments for the program, being a parent is a good thing for a producer. Melody Wilding, thanks so much. Author of Trust Yourself, thank you for joining us for another edition of Air Talk. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.